Welcome back to Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adensasser. I am one of the hosts and producers of this podcast. And joining me, as always, is my co-host and producer, Daniel Zana. Hey, Harry. My name is Daniel Zana. I'm a documentary filmmaker and video editor and also a Jew. Our guest today is a film critic who writes for Above the Line, Below the Line, and Solzy at the Movies. Daniel Solzman, welcome to Jews on Film. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. We're excited to have you today to discuss the, the film, The Producers. Just to clarify, we are talking about The Producers from 1967, directed by Mel Brooks. Now, before we kind of dive into things, Danielle, I wanted to ask just a few questions to kind of set the table here a little bit. First question being, why did you choose this film? I figured you all hadn't seen The Fablement yet, <laughs> which would have been my first choice, given that it's uh, opening on yeah. November 23rd. Right. We're going to see that one later. But is there anything else about this film that that made you uh, want to pick it besides it wasn't the Fablemans? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's Mel Brooks. Yeah, this is our, our third Mel Brooks film that we're covering on the podcast. And it's always fun to find the kind of Jewish angle there, because even when the movie's not about Jewish Jewish content explicitly, which I think it's going to be hard for us to find some of that in here. Although there are, there are a couple of stretches that I think we'll make, mm -hmm. you know, there there's such a Jewishness, I, I would say, to the comedy, to the to the world that, that Mel Brooks always builds. For sure. Danielle, uh, I wanted to know, looking back, what did Jewish film look like for you growing up? One of the first films that I ever saw was executive produced by Steven Spielberg, The Land Before Time. And I mean, Jurassic Park, I mean, that's really the film that made me fall in love with film, which again, goes back to Steven Spielberg. Absolutely. And I, I want to follow up with that because obviously Mel Brooks and Steven Spielberg, right? We're talking about Jewish filmmakers. Do you think that there's something inherent to these very pronounced Jewish filmmakers that inherently makes their movies Jewish no matter where they go with it? Or is there something that these two figures specifically fuse into their work that kind of reflects their own Jewishness? I think it really depends on the film. But I mean, Mel Brooks in particular, you can see the Jewishness in some of his films like there are very few films that have, I mean, especially when it comes to the Holocaust, there are very few films that walk that fine line. I mean, there's an entire documentary, The Last Laugh, about whether it's taboo or not to joke about the Holocaust. Now, Mel Brooks, he, he walks that fine line. I mean, you have Springtime for Hitler in this one, and it is hysterical. Right. Not so subtle, Mel Brooks. He doesn't deal in subtlety. I think he sort of, he likes to... Um, you know, traffic in extremes and offend everyone equally, it seems. It seems like in every movie, no one is spared. But you can sort of tell with him that he has sort of a good heart with it. And it's all like for the sake of satire and, and comedy and things like that. And, and and I'm excited to jump into that, you know, that, that question of joking about the Holocaust, because even just the way that you framed that and talking about that other film and Mel Brooks kind of asking that question, that's a big part of what this movie's asking. You know, is it okay to laugh at the Holocaust? You know, and obviously this film is from 1967, which was much closer to to the Holocaust than than we currently yeah. are. But it, sure. I think it. I think the movie is constantly asking that question of, is it poor taste to make light of this, or can or our audience is ready for it? And I think eponymous producers in the film kind of bet that people aren't ready to laugh at it. And you know, as we see in the movie plays out, and we'll get to this as we go through the plot they're not entirely correct about that. So I think this movie is directly asking those questions of can, you know, can a, a filmmaker like Mel Brooks, can someone poke fun at, at the Holocaust and at World War II and just, you know, play light with it? Well, let's get started, Harry. What do you say? Let's take a look and uh, have you check out the IMDb summary and let everyone know what the film's all about. For sure. So uh, the summary reads... Down on his luck, theatrical producer Max Bialystok is forced to romance rich old ladies to finance his efforts. When timid accountant Leo Bloom reviews Max's accounting books, the two hit upon a way to make a fortune by producing a surefire flop. The play, which is to be their goldmine, springtime for Hitler. I feel like the summaries are always pretty terrible, <laughs> without a doubt. <laughs> they either don't mention anything about the Jewish element of it or, yeah, without sure. sort of framing it that it's like Mel Brooks, I think it's kind of you know, hard to, to get that sort of satirical, uh, context, yeah. but why don't we I take like a, that one? That, that one, that one laid out the plot for me. I, yeah, I, I got it was what all was there. going on and it was all there. And I'm yeah. intrigued enough. I like that finish with the springtime for Hitler. Like 
Good right. luck getting into this film. Totally. So let's take a quick break. We'll come right back and we'll dive into the plot. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with film critic Danielle Salzman to discuss the film, The Producers. Harry, do you want to kick us off with the plot here? So uh, so the movie opens with Max Bialystok, who's played by Zero Mostel, and he is a washed-up Broadway producer who raises money for his shows by flirting with and implied but likely sleeping with elderly wealthy women in exchange for exorbitant checks. So we see him with several of these women as the opening credits play out, and suddenly in the beginning he's walked in on by an accountant named Leo Bloom, who's played by Gene Wilder. And I'll mention this is our third time doing a Mel Brooks film, a third one with Gene Wilder in one of the leading roles, and you know clearly uh, his muse. But um, he walks, so he's walked in on by uh, Gene Wilder's character, Leo Berlum, who takes a look at, eventually gets to take a look at Max's books and discovers that Max, you know, was engaging in a little bit of fraud. He had raised $60,000 for his last play, but it would only cost him $58,000. And Max kind of nonchalantly admits, yeah, I treated myself, I forget what he says, to like a massage or something. But yeah, he, for $2,000, skimming, right? Yeah, exactly. He, he's skimming some money off the top. Max basically asks Leo, he says, can you just, you know, work around the books, kind of make it work? And Leo is someone who's a very, you know, he's a straight shooter. He's not someone who's ever really engaged in any sort of fraud or illegal activities, but ultimately succumbs and kind of makes some changes. And while he's doing it, he, he sort of muses aloud. It's absolutely amazing. But under the right circumstances, a producer could make more money with a flop than he could with a hit. Hmm. Yes, it's quite possible. If he were certain that the show would fail, a man could make a fortune. Yes? Yes, what? What you were saying. Keep talking. What was I saying? You were saying that under the right circumstances, a producer could make more money with a flop than he could with a hit. Yes, it's quite possible. You keep saying that, but you don't tell me how. How can a producer make more money with a flop than he could with a hit? And, you know, Max, who we've already been shown is, is a little bit, uh, you know, conniving. He kind of gets very excited about this and goes all in on this plan. And he we were treated to this montage of Max and Leo going through New York City, where Max kind of shows Leo all the joys and all of the luxuries that money can buy you in the city and ultimately tries to convince him and ultimately is successful in convincing him to, you know, give up his kind of moral, his morality and join him on this big plan. And, and maybe we could start talking about the film here. There were a couple of things worth calling out. I just sort of love, we kind of went in reserve, reverse chronological order. So we saw Blazing Saddles and then Young Frankenstein. And then we saw Producers, which was, you know, sort of the first, one of the earlier Mel Brooks pictures, but I think probably the first one that he did with Gene Wilder. And, you know, Gene Wilder in this film, Leo Bloom, he plays this really like buttoned up, very, he says he gets like hysteria a lot. He has hysteria attacks, which I would say like is a panic attack or an anxiety attack. And just like the way that he plays the two, like sort of play off each other. Max is like a very experienced person. As you mentioned, Harry, he's like sleeping with or canoodling with a lot of older ladies. And one of the funny gags I, I liked was that he is seeing different people and he's constantly like searching through this like chest full of pictures to find the right one to pair up with his appointments. And essentially what he's doing is he's collecting checks made out to cash from each one of these older women as he's like investing in these plays. Uh, but I thought like the montage up top was like so fun. And, you know, especially that scene in Lincoln Square where they're like dancing and then the, the fountain just erupts. It's very like cinematic and very, uh, very notable. I think it's, it's very interesting. Max is constantly egging Leo on to like follow his lead and to and to... It's, it's very sinful, you know, he's like tempting him a little bit, but we'll get, you know, we'll get into those Jewish illusions later, but I wanted to see, Danielle, uh, is there anything that struck you up top? Because like for me, it really gets going uh, once they start reading the plays, find springtime for Hitler, and then you get into all the fun stuff. Totally, yeah. I think it it's a lot of like a uh, place setting up top, introducing us to to Max, who's like this sort of slimy guy wearing this yeah. like smoking jacket and the hair with like just oh I don't know. It's yeah, it's interesting, you know, before we get on to the next part, because I think sure. we, we should jump in soon. But the other thing I'll note in those kind of opening sequences is that this really could be a movie without a place that's not really grounded anywhere. Like, of course, you know, you're talking about Broadway and that's such a big part of it. And that's like New York City. But it almost feels like they worked in that extensive montage where you really get to go through kind of the highlights of New York City. You have those classic standing on the top on the top of a tall building and looking out and saying, right, you know, right. look at the city, look at all of its grandeur. But 
it's like there's this like five minute sequence that they kind of work in there to say, put us in a time and place, basically, to ground us there. Because for the rest of the film, I don't think we see any you know, overheads, any kind of establishing shots of any other areas, yeah. you know, and, and coming in like from, you know, Mel Brooks writing in this time period and this kind of the Jewish lens. And we've spoken about, you know, the Jewish contingency, basically, in New York City that kind of existed in that time and connected to Broadway in certain ways. And it's really like, it's just, I don't know, it, it just places it somewhere. And I think that really sets the scenes for a lot of the riffs on Broadway that I think mm. we see later with a lot of the characters we see, a lot of the response, a lot of like, you know, the the when he starts kind of assembling the cast and crew of who's going to make up this play, I think you're supposed to feel like this is a riff on, on Broadway as much as anything else. Yeah, and it's definitely like an uptown movie because like later on in the film, they're going downtown to where the artists right, are right. and all that kind of stuff. So there's very much like an uptown, downtown situation going on. You know, Danielle, we're going to move on to your kind of more exciting part, you know, uh, as you know, after sort of Leo's on board with Max's scheme, they're like, all right, we got to find the worst play ever. And they're looking through and they're looking through, they have piles and piles of scripts. Suddenly Max finds one and it's called Springtime for Hitler, a gay romp with Adolf and Eva at Berchtesfaden. Did I get that right, Harry? <laughs> Close enough, I think. Sure, sure. So they visit the author. His name is Franz Liebkin because they want to get the rights to the play. And it's sort of alluded to that he's this ex-Nazi, heavily alluded to. And he wrote this play as kind of like an earnest attempt to cast Hitler in like a good light. And uh, then they visit this director who they're hoping will sort of tank the play even further, as if it's not enough that they have an ex-Nazi writing the play. The director is called Roger Debris and they, Roger Debris, and, and convince him to direct the play after Max assures Leo that the plays always close after the first rehearsal. There's like too much dancing, they say. In Roger's plays. Yeah, Roger, yeah Roger's plays always close after the first. Okay, so then finally they hold an open casting call and that's a, that's a fun scene we'll talk about in a second. But, you know, there's a room full of people auditioning for Hitler. There's a really nice, fun montage there. And they end up settling on Lorenzo St. Dubois, who we call LSD. He's a hippie who walked into the wrong audition and he gave a very soulful performance with his backing band. Psychedelically speaking, I am talking about the power. Love power. Essentially, after they've cast LSD, Max shares with Leo that he sold 25,000% of the profits in exchange for funding. But once the show fails, they'll be in the clear, and I believe they're going to be going to Rio de Janeiro. That's sort of yes. their escape plan. So uh, let's pause here. Any interesting, fun things you want to call out? The way that Kenneth Mars plays it. I mean, like, like I mean, I've seen Dick Sean in other films before, but I mean, Kenneth Mars just plays the character so over the top. Kenny Mars also plays Inspector Kemp from Young Frankenstein. And I think you're you're right. Like the 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 performance as this sort of like eccentric ex-Nazi playwright who lives in New York who wants to get their play on Broadway. It's a very specific role, but I think that was a very um, notable and memorable performance for sure. Yeah, I mean, he absolutely nailed it. I think the more, you know, his more extreme persona kind of lends them to believe that this is for sure going to be a failure and and not succeed at all because they have, uh, I believe he's like raising pigeons on the roof. Is that right? And uh, yeah. Just a very fun introduction to to his character. And I, I love yeah. the audition. Yeah. Like the, you know, this notion that like there's thousands of people who are like eager to try out to play Hitler in New York City. And, you know, they all have amazing singing voices. But, uh, you know, because it's sort of doomed to fail, they try to find someone with the worst sort of, uh, you know, the worst singing voice and but you know i'm surprised that they didn't cut off lsd earlier because it seemed like all the talented people they cut off right away whereas him he was so terrible but like the director didn't see through that ruse and kind of cut him off you know yeah i, I think his i mean his performance was a showstopper i was definitely like 
completely intrigued that it's true. The movie gives him a couple of minutes to really belt out this very like anti-establishment, you know, turning bombs into turning guns into flowers, like this very kind yeah. of emotional plea that he kind of gives. But it, it feels it's interesting because you're watching that sequence in the beginning. And in some ways, I think and we know later the, the play obviously becomes successful because I think people read it as comedic, as, you know, right. almost like a parody. Yeah. But I think. I was wondering in that scene, you know, should they have gone more earnestly? Like, what about, you know, the guy who was like, kind of like, there were, there were people that were singing, you know, there was this former opera singer that was right, kind of right, trying right. to get in there. And there were like these people that like, it almost feels like that tonally might've been more explicitly offensive, but I'm not sure if our, if, you know, if, if the producers here are, maybe they don't want to give earnestness because, and we didn't mention this, but there's an, right after they, uh, right after they get the, they meet with uh, the, the ex-Nazi friends, Liebkin, I think it is. Mm-hmm. They, uh, he gives them like Nazi, like armbands that they right. actually walk out with, which is yeah. like pretty alarming to see, but then they throw it into the trash and, and, and I think, uh, right. And, and Leo's character specifically like spits on it. And you get this sense that like, He's he's in it for the profit, you know. He's in mm-hmm. it because he wants to kind of go to Rio, which you know is its own thing. But he's he's clearly uncomfortable with this, and clearly like you know feels. I don't I don't know if we could read so much shame into it, but maybe just like they don't want to promote the Nazi. You know, they, they they're trying really hard to like not meet this with the earnestness. So instead of coming with, I think a hundred percent earnestness that they might have caught if they captured, you know, if they had a an actor who really was like fit for the part. Mm-hmm. I think they're taken by this guy who's just so ridiculous and over the top and a little bit, you know, charismatic, I would say, but maybe a little laughable. Mm-hmm. I think they're like, maybe they feel more comfortable with that. And, you know, just going back to the conversation we had at the beginning about, you know, how can you cast Hitler? How can you talk about the Holocaust, you know, in films afterwards? You know, sometimes people think like, you know, comedy is, is is off limits because comedy is like you can't make light of it. It has to be very serious. But in some ways, I would argue, and I'm eager to hear your thoughts on this, you know, is comedy maybe a better approach? Like, let's laugh, let's talk down, let's make fun, because the second that we cast Hitler in a dramatic role and put an actor in a position to give dramatic weight and earnestness to a performance of Hitler, like in some ways, that's a lot more troubling. So I, I want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the film. I mean, co- and comedies too, like, they have to walk a fine line. I mean, there's some films where Jojo Rabbit most recently pulled it off. Yep. And before that, because I remember going into Jojo Rabbit's world premiere, I had planned to rewatch the producers. I had planned to rewatch uh, To Be or Not to Be. And uh, I just ran out of time before leaving for Toronto, but ahead of the... Uh, theatrical release i rewatched uh those films and reviewed them and those are and those are films where like jack benny's father originally walked out of the theater right and when jack explained what they were trying to do with the film his father saw it like a hundred times i do feel like a little bit of like context is is important when you're like watching a performance like this like you said harry i think had they cast someone maybe who was more earnest do you feel like maybe the play would have failed because like you know as we'll get we'll get we'll get there in a in a little bit but like i almost feel like lsd saved the play you know because because of his performance and his depiction of hitler i leave you i leave you baby i leave you now leave me alone. <laughs> Harry, he's funny. Hey, Mario! <laughs> you can't me so much. Why don't you pay attention to me, you big dictator? Oh, you chicks. Oh, you chicks. You all alive. Oh, you think about it. Leave it, leave it, leave it, leave it. Don't you forget, baby, I took an oath. Deutschland. He brought everyone back to their seats and like, I think an actually like a, a serious actor would, would have offended people like you're saying to the point where they're like, oh yeah, this is too spooky. This is too real. I'm out of here. Like this is too offensive. You know, I think I, I agree. I, I think it really is LSD. And I think he turned what would have seemed like an, an honest, you know, kind of homage to, you know, the Nazi party and like, whatever, there's, there's some great lines that hopefully we can cue in from that opening number when they actually put on the play, you know, come and join mm-hmm. the Nazi party. Yeah. But um, I think That's what Mel he Brooks does is doing that voice, by the yeah, way. Yeah. I, it was his voice that was that him dancing, though? No, no, that was not him dancing. And even the musical on Broadway it's they're always playing his voice. Oh, really? Nice. That's awesome. 
That's awesome. But so, but like, I think when you throw LSD in there and right, he keeps saying like, you know, like this is like whatever baby. And I, yeah. you know, like the, uh, the author Leib, of the, the yeah. play Liebkin is like, he doesn't say baby. What's with all these babies? Hitler would never say that. Like, I think that turns it into a Mel Brooks film. I think that makes it so obviously parodical. Like, yes, it's, it's walking this fine line of where it can be, you know, funny and not. And I think that's the most important part for any of these films that engage with, you know, the Holocaust comedically, but it's it's not hiding the fact that it's comedy. You know, this movie like is is making it very clear to you this is supposed to be something you're gonna laugh at. And I think the audience, you kind of see that transition. And you know, we'll, let's jump ahead to the scene soon because we keep talking about it. Right, but exactly. That transition in the mind in like the in you know in the theater when it's like, oh, we're supposed to be laughing at this. Like it's not just like, oh, it wasn't funny before, now it's funny. It's like, oh, maybe we didn't understand that opening number. And like it's almost like the the play was giving them the license to laugh. And right. I think you know, that kind of softens the, the crowd and that gets everyone really invested again. For sure. I wanted to talk about like the concierge. Did you, do you, did you both notice like when they first go to Liebkin's apartment, I, I thought that exchange. So, so they're going up to Liebkin's apartment and this woman sticks her head out. She has this like fishnet, uh, oh, yeah. hair stuff. I, I let, I just like loved her, her, her like accent and the way she talked and just the way that she's conversing with them. No one gets in the building unless I know who they want. I'm the concierge. My husband used to be the concierge, but he's dead. Now I'm the concierge. We are seeking Franz Liebkind. Oh, the crowd. He's on the top floor, apartment 23. Thank you. But you won't find him there. He's up on the roof with his birds. He keeps birds. Dirty, disgusting, filthy, lice-ridden birds. He used to be able to sit out on the stoop like a person. Not anymore. No, sir. Birds. You get my drift? We get it. We get your drift. Thank you, madam. I, I just enjoyed all the different characters and all that they brought to the movie. Like I said before, you know, they're heading from uptown on, one can presume, Upper East Side, Upper West Side, whatever. They're coming down to Jane Street, which is like, I believe, in the West Village or Soho. Um, and yeah, they're going up, uh, you know, and then they go see the director. You know, I think um, so they meet with the director. And yeah, and I feel like the, some of these depictions are a little bit dated. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I there's numerous mentions throughout the film. You know, the way that like Max relates to Carmen Ghia and also to Roger as well. Like when they, when they kind of have tension with each other. And I feel like that's, I want to say like the rest of the film, like you can obviously take as like satire. Cause it's like making fun of, you know, Nazis and things like that. But I do feel like the, you know, sort of the, the low hanging fruit with the gay jokes and things like that were like a little bit, you know, dated, you know, it does sort of separate and, and, distinguish the producers who are like these very fancily dressed people to more like hip downtown people, which is like you'd, you'd lump in like LSD and Carmen Ghia and the, and the theater director as well as kind of like these artsy people where you have like art and commerce. I mean, some of the, I mean, definitely the gay jokes would probably not fly today. Yeah. Like they would probably have to take another pass on the uh, script. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Probably yeah. the secretary character who we haven't spoken about. Who's Ula? just kind of uh, yeah. Well, so we yeah. didn't meet her yet. We, we have to. We have to get. All, oh, I guess we did. Yeah, I guess. I think you know, they've the, started. They've started spending their money a little bit already. Right. So they raise I, the money yeah. and then they get new suits and then they meet. Ula, we get introduced to Ula, who's a non-English speaking. Maybe one can presume maybe like Swedish descent or something like that. Doesn't <laughs> speak English. She answers the phone, kind yeah. of, kind of a little ditzy and. Her main yeah. draw is her looks and she dances, right? You, you get yeah. the sense, and this is true of a lot of Mel Brooks films, I would say, you know, after experiencing, after, you know, watching a couple of them where he just, he's kind of always going for the joke in the scene. And he's always like, and like you're talking about, you know, characters and the concierge there. And I'm sure there's more context to that character and, and mm -hmm. you know, where she might have come from that I'm not picking up on all of, but it's, mm -hmm. it's not really servicing the plot. If anything, it's kind of slowing down the plot. Mm -hmm. It's a very Mel Brooks thing to kind of just, take pivots, you know, left and right to just throw in just a comedic bit and just run, run you into the ground with some comedic joke. That's sure. like not necessarily going to be pushing towards the rest of the film and getting us to the end, but it's just, it meanders a little bit because, you know, and we'll see, we're, we're more than halfway through the plot already and we'll, we'll keep getting through it. But 
you know, there's probably an hour's worth of plot in this film and then a half hour of just kind of taking the time to get there sure. and, and just getting in on those very funny moments. Yeah, it wouldn't be a Mel Brooks film without it, you know? Yeah, of course. Do you want to keep going, um, Harry? Speaking of, yeah, yeah. So I will uh, I will continue uh, with the film and, and what we've gotten up to is basically the premiere of the actual play, which we've been alluding to, but the musical has its premiere in front of a packed audience and as the opening number plays Springtime for Hitler in Germany. which is just iconic and something that I was familiar with a, a long time ago. But, uh, you know, it was just, I, they, <laughs> this is an aside. I'll, I'll get back to the plot, but I sure. just noticed that they they work in that sort of the the melody of it in sure. a couple scenes before as they're like leading in there to kind mm-hmm. of, you know, induce it in your head. Like it's supposed to be catchy. It's supposed to be a Broadway smash hit. And it's, it's just brilliant that they kind of put like the most absurd lines. Like if you if you catch yourself singing that out loud, which I was doing a little bit this afternoon, Harry, you know, watch for it, Hitler in watch Germany. It. It's just it, I think it's supposed to be you know ridiculous. Sure. It's supposed to be satirical. So, anyways, we get that opening number, springtime for Hitler in Germany. It's a full opening number. It's you know fully set. It's a clear you know loving homage to just like the movie musical. You get you know you get those like famous overhead shots of the dancers kind of moving in sync. Except this time they're kind of forming a swastika, which is. <laughs> you know obviously absurd and upsetting but it's like it's fitting into this this kind of this mold of the uh, of the classic movie musical so we have this opening number and they just keep cutting back to the audience which is right. uh, increasingly uncomfortable and displeased so watching from a back a balcony we see Max and Leo and they're ecstatic that the place seems to be flopping people are you know already getting upset and walking out and they're so excited they're so ecstatic that they decide to go to the theater bar for celebratory drinks so after they leave we kind of the, the camera stays with the audience and we see that they they start to laugh hysterically because LSD comes out and like we mentioned his delivery his you know his presence is so comedic and so ridiculous that it comes off as kind of intentionally comical and it's intentionally making fun of Hitler. And the audience kind of settles back into their seats and begins to enjoy it and immediately starts erupting in just sort of rapturous laughter, that kind of over-the-top movie laughter that, yeah, that maybe not so realistic, but just immediately they're in love with it. Mm-hmm. So back in the bar, we see Max and Leo and they're celebrating their success. They they buy a round of drinks for everyone in the bar, which is a nice little gag because there's one other guy sitting yeah. next to them. Exactly. And uh, and then we hit the intermission of the play and they kind of bury their faces because they don't want to be seen by the theater goers because out of fear that it'll be an angry mob of people who hated the play. But it turns out while they're covering their faces, all these people come into the into the bar raving about the play, saying it's the most they've laughed at in years. And, you know, the, the news that the worst thing that these uh, that Max and Leo could have heard, they say, oh, it's going to run on Broadway for at least five years. This is yeah. always going to be on. It's going to make so much money, which ironically is is not what they wanted to hear. So the Max and Leo are stunned to hear the audience rave about the show and, you know, talk about how it's going to run for so long. And meanwhile, when we're back in the play, we see, you know, the writer we were talking about, Franz, and he's trying to halt the play because he thinks it's an inaccurate depiction of Hitler. And it's, you know, not what the not what Hitler was actually like. But when he kind of gets on stage, he, you know, he tries to pull the curtain and stand in front. But eventually he's, you know, whacked on the back of the head and passes out and the audience kind of cheers as he's whisked away. And, and we have this, you know, incredible opening number. And that I'll just mention was like that felt like this play was becoming a Mel Brooks movie. You know, if we're mm-hmm. talking about like the end of Blazing Saddles, when like it comes very meta, the curtain drops. Right. It's just like, that's all happening in world and out of world. So it was just this incredible moment. But, you know, we have this shockingly successful play. As the uh, musical is going on, I mean, I just love the intercutting with the audience, like seeing those shocked faces. Yeah. Like everyone's yeah. looking so dumbfounded, jaws dropped. That after the number edge, you have that one dude who just gets up to clap. And everyone's yep. like, boo, yep. boo, boo. <laughs> I sort of knew how the movie was going to end before I saw it, but I just love that they like bribed the New York Times drama critic with like a hundred dollar bill around his ticket to, to really just try to sabotage their their review of the film. Uh, but it didn't work, you know, and and. It's worth calling out the costumes of this film. I think there's like sort of these like showgirls up top with like, you know, pretzel bikinis and like, um, I feel like they had like two beer steins and like a table, very creative ways of like covering the body. They had these like iron eagles. And then they also had like the classic like stormtrooper, you know, SS uniforms and things like that. I feel like this play in Springtime for Hitler is kind of like the Broadway version of things like The Room or Rocky Horror Picture Show, where they're like so bad that they're good and people come back and enjoy it over and over and over again. Because 
it doesn't seem like people are enjoying this play for its, you know, merits in terms of a play and its Broadwayness or anything like that. It's they're watching it because it's funny and because it's stupid yeah, and it's making fun of Hitler. I, you know, I, I don't think that they're laughing at it. I really think that there's that big transition when, you know, LSD comes out. We've been talking about it when it becomes clear that it's a parody. And I think because their, their response isn't like, this is ridiculous. I love laughing at this. I can't wait to go back. Like, it's really like, I don't know. And then that was the read. No one says it explicitly like, sure. oh, this is parody. Like, I'm coming back in. But you really get this sense that they're like, oh, no, this we're, we're in on the joke here. Like, we're making fun of Hitler. And this character is so ridiculous. Because I think if it was played for earnestness, mm-hmm. and it was so offensive and so confusing and so right. just over the top, might have been like, oh, we're not going to engage with this and take it seriously. Uh-huh. I think they read it as like the same way, you know, we as an audience are watching this film kind of from this Mel Brooks lens of like, oh, we're making fun of Hitler. We're, we're trying right. to, you know, dehumanize him a little bit, make him just kind of ridiculous and inject some humor into this. So I got the sense, like, especially when we overhear them talking in the bar, like, oh, this is hilarious. This is a mm-hmm. great play. And not, right. and not that they didn't like it, but th- that was just the way that I watched it. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. Uh, Yeah. Unfortunately, it seems like LSD did too good of a job. He's bringing, you know, he'll be bringing audiences back for many years to come. Exactly. You know, it's interesting because like, you know, we're we're talking about how this kind of becomes like he's taking, again, this comedy, I really think is is parody, right? This is such a meta film, especially in context of Mel Brooks, because, because I think he's, he becomes this huge genre parodist. And I say becomes because a lot of the movies we were mentioning earlier, you know, Young Frankenstein, and we were talking, we haven't even covered things like Spaceballs and, and we did uh, Blazing Saddles, like that come after, you know, that, that is something that Mel Brooks does, which is he takes subjects, which are generally revered kind of Mm -hmm. untouchable and you know star wars is a funny example because i don't think star wars then had become yet what it's become in terms of this sort of untouchable pop cultural institution that people have modeled their lives after kind of thing but he takes these things and he he undermines them he makes them ridiculous so i think with this movie we're not supposed to laugh at not only supposed to laugh at you know leo and max and their unsuccessful plan which i think is ridiculous but i think it's also like he's targeting you know hitler and he's trying to do what the play didn't achieve didn't set out to do but ultimately achieved in doing which is just make him ridiculous undermine him i wanted to uh to mention one quote just to talk about sure. this because i saw something mel brooks said about this one of his lifelong jobs is to make the world laugh at adolf hitler the film was a way to enact vengeance through comedy the only way i could get even with hitler and company was to bring them down with laughter brooks said hey man you're a german <laughs> all germans that's right that means we cannot attack germany I mean, I got all my friends here, you know? And what about me? And I think that's also coloring just how he's like viewing this because he's showing that you don't have to take this seriously and you can kind of disarm something, disarm someone by, you know, turning it into a parody. So that's that's the evolution that I think really happens in the se- in the sequence. It's not just that, you know, this is like such a ridiculous and a bad performance, but it's like it's giving people license to laugh, which I, I think goes back to that first conversation we were having about, you know, can you laugh at something so serious? Like how and how can you laugh at it? And in one way, it's like it's taking vengeance against the subject that we're laughing at. It's by, you know, turning you into something more comical, something more ridiculous. That's like it's an it's an act of vengeance. I mean, and that's clearly how Mel Brooks saw it. And I know that not everyone can, you know, get to the place where they're comfortable with that. But I, I think the film does a really good job at absolutely him totally yeah i mean like none of the nazi characters in the film whether it's like the portrayal of hitler or franz liebkind are taken seriously they're all kind of like outlandish kooky characters and we're not meant to take them seriously or be afraid of them which is kind of you know defangs this very awful thing and then kind of like put it in puts it in such a different setting than what we're used to where you have like Hitler playing piano singing to Ava Braun and like talking to Goebbels Goebbels baby where's my propaganda (laughs) like all that kind of stuff I feel like I mean I loved his performance as Hitler as this just sort of like just the two meshing like the counterculture 60s like cadence and method of speaking with with someone who whenever you see Hitler in movies is mostly just like this very thick German English accent. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit scary. This is very much not someone uh, to be afraid of. Anything to add on this section, Daniel? 
Yeah, I mean, Dick Sean's performance, I mean, I would say Taika's performance is right up there. Mm-hmm. As far as like Jojo Rabbit. Hitler. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's doing something very similar. I think yeah. it's making Hitler, right? And and Jojo Rabbit is imagining Hitler through the mind of, I don't know how old he is, like an, an eight-year-old kid, or something. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the, and it's like it's making him just ridiculous and stupid and and foolish. I think it's doing the same thing. I think he's probably had uh, you know the producers on on repeat before making Jojo Rabbit for sure. I think this notion of of making Hitler someone who's like sort of foolish and not to be feared um, certainly helps kind of stomach the film. It's something like you said, Harry, like such a shocking content and shocking subject matter. After the opening night of the film, the next day, Max and Leo return to their offices and uh, they get all these notes from all sorts of investors and people who are very excited about the film success. And uh, Leo's lamenting his fate. Um, so Max takes his anger out on on the director who shows up to wish them a congratulations. He gets really upset with him. And then Franz enters the office and chases Max and Leo, uh, trying to shoot them because he's so upset at how the film or he's so upset at how the play was received or how the play turned out. You know, he was the author of the film and they totally took his work and, you know, twisted it a little bit. And, you know, after this drawn out scene of a uh, them hiding underneath the desks and dodging him and things like that. He's unsuccessful. He tries to turn the gun on himself and it's fine. He finds that it's empty. So Max tries to pay him and uh, he says, why don't you go? And really it's the actors who's at fault here. So already like Max is selling out his, his actors from the play and says, go buy more bullets. Um, but Leo says, no, 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 let's not do that. Why don't we bomb the theater? So they, go downstairs and there's like a sort of comedic scene where they're sort of setting up the dynamite and we have a slow fuse and a long fuse and there's a, you know, kind of a funny gag down there. Uh, But they end up bombing the theater, but they are injured in the bombing and arrested. And uh, at the end we have like a court scene and the jury finds them incredibly guilty. Uh, (laughs) And before the sentencing, Leo tries to appeal to the court and he praises Max ultimately for changing his life for the better. And Max adds that they learned their lesson and they won't make the same mistakes. However, we cut to them doing a performance in prison, all of them having canes. And it seems that they're probably restaging the play in prison. Um, Max is sort of doing the the dance numbers and Leo is sitting in front with his sort of like prison scarf and his rubber stamp. And he is settling off percentages of the play for profits. Uh, and it seems like, as you know, we go 20% of the play and you owe 30% of the play and then you owe 50% of the play. And that's where the film ends. And then we have this sort of like nice uh, end credits, which I really loved, by the way, the sort of like stylized opening and ending credits very much of the time. But that's how the film, the producer ends. The way that Max pauses, because yeah. he thinks like there's something going on behind them. And it takes a while before they realize it's dynamite. And then when they don't, then when uh, Kenneth Mars's character doesn't realize if it's the slow fuse or the quick fuse. And I'm like, you all should be running as soon as you light that thing. Like you said, Harry, like any opportunity to insert like a quick gag that doesn't necessarily serve the plot. But I feel like this was, you know, funny and and, uh, kind of reinforces kind of like how silly uh, Franz is as a character. Yeah. It's a fascinating kind of reversal where we get, this character um, of Franz, you know, he comes in with a gun and he's all of a sudden in his face, he's wearing Nazi regalia, basically the whole film, but especially now he's like in the full costume and he's turning a gun on these two characters, which, you know, we haven't mentioned whether or not they're Jewish, coded Jewish, if that's something a part of their identity. I mean, the film doesn't say it explicitly, but there, there's definitely a read there. But, you know, he's chasing around these two guys like with a gun kind of enacting you know, the, it's kind of Nazi violence very explicitly. Right, it's like right, right. something that they're, you know, parodying from the past all of a sudden is very real and is very present. And even, you know, there's that gag, he turns the gun on himself. Or I thought like a very intentional reference to, you know, the way Hitler killed himself right, right. At, at the end of the war. And it's just like, like, I, I don't think the, the scene was ever played to be uh, fearful. Like, I, I don't think it was supposed to be scary. You were never really supposed to be concerned for their lives. But all of a sudden, it, it's just like, you can make fun of this, but, and this is something that's true today, unfortunately. I mean, there still are people who believe in Nazism, who believe in, I mean, anti-Semitism is, you know, has remained prevalent. And it's just, 
it's this kind of stark reminder at the towards the end of the film that you know laugh all we want this stuff is kind of still here it's a bad analogy but follow me along here it's like and when people like collect tigers at, you know, in their like private zoos at home and they're like, no, don't worry. It's just a tiger. It's just a tiger. Let's, I can pet it and I can feed it. What was that movie? The Tiger King, you know, like the show or whatever. Show. And yeah. it's like, it's like, well, yeah, you have like a huge tiger who normally like kills people. If you mess around with the tiger enough, it's going to hurt you. And like, you're doing business with a Nazi, an ex-Nazi who's still like a huge fan of Hitler. And like, not only did you like buy his play f- right out from under him like you made him sign this thing when he was just when they were getting drunk i believe on schnapps or something but then you like not only yeah you just like totally twist his play around and you piss him off to the point where he's like pretty upset like it's not completely unexpected and out of the blue but uh you know you can't ultimately change someone's like base nature so i don't know if that analogy of the tiger worked, but that's just immediately what came to mind is like it's an animal. I, mean, I know. You know, I, you know, I get what you're saying. Like they were, they were playing with fire. They met right. this this guy, you know, who's a clear Nazi sympathizer from the beginning, and they're like, we can use him to our ends. But that comes with real repercussions because you know, you you have almost like dynamite. You know, you have this kind of live dynamite next to you, and you don't mm-hmm. know how short that fuse is. You know, mm-hmm. just to work back into the film. Totally. Any other thoughts here, Danielle? But yeah, Zero and Gene gave these dynamic uh, performances and. There's something about watching Zero's performance that can easily be described as this masterclass in acting. And I did uh, write that. I mean, I referred to them in my review as Jewish, probably because Mel Brooks is writing the film. These, even if it's not said in the film, you have the, I mean, they're both Jewish actors. Right. So, I mean, yeah. I just felt it was implied. And one of the reasons it made it work so well is how funny the script is on top of their deliveries. And it's hard. And even though I know that they had the remake, the musical mm-hmm. remake, I mean, it's just hard to imagine anyone else in these roles. I mean, it's interesting that that this is sort of chronologically speaking, this is sort of before uh, Zero Mostel played one of his more iconic roles as Tevia from Fiddler on the Roof. And this is like before Gene Wilder kind of blew up and did Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein and all these other movies that we know him for. Um, but it's, it, you know, one thing that I also noticed in this film is that like everyone yells, you know, like <laughs> we have, oh, yeah. we have, like, I mean, it's not, I don't know, like everyone just gets their points across via yelling or screaming or singing or whatever, you know, we have Max like screaming and being sort of very theatrical with his delivery, especially as he's, you know, uh, romancing these older ladies and just proclaiming how lovely they are. And then you have Leo, you know, when he has his hysteria attacks. Please don't jump on me. And he's just like, you know, a bundle of nerves. And then Franz Liebkind also is just super yelly, kind of doing that Nazi thing in the film. And, uh, you know, I I do think it kind of adds to the gravitas of these roles, kind of really selling it with this extreme. Yeah, just this extreme yelling all the time. It's a loud movie. Yeah, I I think theatrical the word you used is exactly the word i mean this is totally a movie about performance and about kind of being over the top and just like the way that the movie like when you were saying that they're so loud it reminded me of that first scene we see with leo when he's having his kind of he's overwhelmed his anxiety and he's having that morality battle and like that specifically the morality battle you know those big questions about you know what's okay and what's not just they're they're totally overblown emotionally and they're they they happen over the top like the only way to answer these questions we're having about what's moral what can you show how can you depict this is to just go over the top go big right. and that's right. that's what happens in the play that's what the movie does and it says i i think the movie is trying to say we're not going to let you get mistaken like this isn't a subtle you know parody we're not being sympathetic like no it's clear we we are making fun of hitler we are making fun of these characters like this is this is supposed to be ridiculous yeah go big or go home right yeah <laughs> definitely uh supposedly mel had met producers who behaved in that way oh interesting yeah oh wow that that definitely adds another layer of like authenticity to it because like mel brooks from all of his other films he's like a big fan of musicals and and theater and things like that so it wouldn't surprise me that there's plenty of uh max bialystok's uh you know 
running around in Broadway trying to make things uh, happen. This is not Mel's only foray into uh, humor at the expense of Jewish pain. You see it again in History of the World Part One, the hmm. Spanish Inquisition. Yeah, it, it sounds like he is true to you know that quote I was reading before, just about like the the vengeance. The only way you can disarm, dismantle, and you know make light of Jewish pain and, and help kind of cure it in some ways is is to uh, you know is to dismantle, is to make fun of it, is to laugh at it. Yeah, definitely. All right, so why don't we take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll rate the film on a scale of one to five Jewish stars and we'll talk a little bit more about all this stuff we've been chatting about. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. This week we're discussing Mel Brooks's The Producers and uh, now we're going to rate it on a scale of one to five Jewish stars. So Daniel, why don't you get us started? How Jewish is the film's content, cast, crew, themes, all the above? Well, that's a tall order for me to handle, but I think I'm up for it. So, you know, we're looking at the cast and the crew, you know, the director and writer, Mel Brooks, Zero Mustel, Gene Wilder, um, Dick Sean, I'm not sure if he's Jewish, but um, so the the two main, the principal cast members are Jewish. You know, the crew, I don't know. Yeah. So we have a few actors up top who are our Jewish leads and then our Jewish director and writer. Um, the content, you know, Jewish, it's, it's interesting. Like, I don't want to necessarily say that, like, Nazi stuff is Jewish by relation because it's not Jewish, you know, like it's, it's an interesting differentiation one could make. And maybe we could argue that it's like splitting hairs um, because it's its own thing, but it's inexorably like tied to Jewish, the Jewish experience because of the Holocaust and things like that. You know, for me, thematically, I think that is probably where most of my uh, discussion will be, you know, just as far as the Hitler of it all and, you know, the, the play and then this notion, um, of just, yeah, I don't know. These are not necessarily Jewish themes, but it's one thing we didn't really talk about, which is just like, uh, you know, the critical reception of, of things where it's like us viewing the audience view the play. And then also how the audience is reviewing the play and then how other people are reviewing the play. It's just, it's just something I didn't get a chance to talk to talk about up top, but like there's that. And then also the idea that, um, you know, they're doing something that's so, um, unthought unheard of, you know, like making a movie about Hitler or making a movie about people doing a play about Hitler. And then, so that's sort of like a, um, shocking premise but then it's almost so theoretically jews would be offended by this but then you're also offending the nazi in the film so like everyone's kind of getting offended in 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 succession which is kind of an interesting turn um and no one is spirit as we say as we said earlier so yeah that's kind of my my sort of uh thoughts on the film uh danielle did you want to go next kind of well i did want to add that uh dick sean is jewish Oh, okay. He's buried in a Jewish cemetery. Well, there you go. Good enough for us. There you go. Um, Works for me. I'm seeing if I can find anything on Kenneth Mars. Well, it looks like he was born Richard Schlulafond in Buffalo, New York. There you go. Because there's nothing on uh, Kenneth's uh, Wikipedia page. And, of course, with all these... Jewish families changing their names coming to the country. Right. I mean, it's hard to tell. Oh, Baruch Bernard Mursky. That was his father. So maybe. Yeah, I mean, cast and crew, very Jewish. Content, sure. I mean, I mean, it's either implied or very uh, upfront or subtle, whatever. But I mean, you can definitely tell the producers in this film are Jewish and mm -hmm. all that fun stuff. And themes, I mean, definitely the whole World War II Holocaust and Mel just doing what Mel does best. Walk that fine line uh, when it comes to Holocaust humor, which yeah. he expand. I mean, The Last Laugh, uh, I'm not sure where it's available right now, but that's definitely a documentary that I highly recommend when it comes to... Uh, Holocaust humor and uh, the taboos around uh, joking about the Holocaust. And there's some people that do it fine and others that crash and burn in the process. 
uh, Mel's one of those that he's mastered uh, the fine art. And of course, he also served in World War II. Harry, how about yourself? Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting question with this movie. You know, I think a big part of it depends on how Jewish we read these characters in. And, and I think I'm going to agree with you, Reed, Danielle, that they're kind of, you know, they're the leads. They're these two Jewish actors playing the leads in a Mel Brooks film. And the taboo subject that they're dealing with, talking about the Holocaust, I, I do think that it it does suggest that they are two Jewish characters. I, I'm reading... I think the question the movie asks a lot is, you know, who can tell this story and who's allowed to put this up? And I think if this is comedy coming from other characters that maybe aren't as personally affected by the Holocaust, it it doesn't read the same way. And you don't give it the benefit of the doubt of being a parody that's kind of intentionally mocking it. And, and Mel Brooks, right, like we said in a lot of these quotes, he talks about how this was his action of taking a vengeance. But I think one thing that this movie also impacts, you know, one of these these ongoing themes that I was uh, that I didn't get to mention earlier was just, you know, what are these characters? What are our relationship to the Holocaust? You know, for Jewish people in in America, you know, 20, 25 years after the end of World War II, and what what's that like? And I think we get this interesting dynamic that I was tracking across a couple of characters, where to some of them, they don't. It, it's almost like they're disconnected from it. Like mm-hmm. there was a there was someone talking about, I forget who, which character it was who kind of reads the, uh, who reads the play and they were talking about, Oh, I think it's the director. And he talks about reading the play and how like, he didn't like the ending cause it was too sad. And, and someone <laughs> right. says that they were reading it and that they, they didn't realize that like the third Reich was the same as Germans, but yeah. I guess they are. And it's like, right. there's this total detachment from some of these characters that like the Jewish characters, right. The, the characters that, you know, Gene Wilder, Leo, Leo Bloom, who I, I do think is a Jewish person. Yeah. They can't, they can't afford to create. They they don't. They can't make that distance. You know, we we have that scene where he takes off his armband and spits in there, and he's like, "I I still feel this personally." And then I think there's just like this sort of inability to escape it. This like, I, I think that's trailed throughout because you know I, I spoke earlier about the the kind of gunfight that they experience where it's like they're getting chased by a Nazi, like they're kind of living in it. And then mm-hmm. the other thing that I wanted to point out, which we did mention was, you know, Daniel, you said earlier that their scheme is to make enough money and they say it a couple of times because they want to move to Rio. Mm-hmm. And if you know, you know, in the history kind of at the end of the Holocaust, yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah, yeah. Good call. Nazi officials, you know, moved out. They they basically escaped. Uh, Brazil was very famous for hosting uh, for, you know, for years afterwards, having a lot of uh, former Nazis there and, and Rio especially had a bunch of them. So there's this like comedic irony that if they're successful, they're just going to go to one of these sort of post World War II Nazi hubs. Like, and I, and I think it fits I, into yeah, this whole thing. I didn't pick that up until just now. That's yeah. a good read. Yeah. And I think, and I think it fits into this whole thing of like, they are making fun of it because, and I know it's not intentional. So I know that this is getting, that, that's why I'm turning this. That's why I'm in the theme section now, not in the content. Cause I don't think okay. they're intending necessarily to make fun of it, but in some ways, like, they have to engage with this play with humor. It, it, for Jews, it's not a taboo subject that you're not allowed to talk about, right? The way that the audience right. initially responds was like, this is in poor taste. How can we deal right, with this? Right, right. You know, these Jewish characters, as we're reading them, don't have that luxury. So, you know, through that understanding of it, I think thematically, this movie is actually a lot more explicitly Jewish than some of the other Mel Brooks films that we've mm-hmm. talked about, because mm-hmm. I really think it's engaging with all the questions we've been talking about of, you know, how can we basically take vengeance against Hitler? How can we uh like how can you know jews kind of live 20 30 years afterwards and what's their relationship with it and i think that that answer of just you know parody make fun demean mock and that's how they can kind of claim how we can claim victory is uh is pretty powerful and is a pretty cool theme that that was running throughout so i i actually did see uh see some jewishness there when i when i was thinking about it a little bit i really like that read of of you know, it's almost like they're they're doomed to fail. Like either they end up in jail or they end up in South America with the likes of like Adolf Adolf Eichmann and all these other like you know Nazi war criminals who have fled the country. Um, but you totally. know, yeah. And oh, I you know I wanted to wedge in just like this idea of like sin and temptation in that like initially Leo and Max, you know, Max kind of like pulls him over to the dark side, so to speak. And you think all this time that he's like being corrupted. And I don't know if it's like Leo being sort of, to use the modern parlance, he's being gaslit to like think that this is the way to be and like that he's enjoying himself. But ultimately like had he followed the straight and narrow course, he would be at an, as an accountant, you know, the following 
couple of weeks, you know, after the, had he not engaged in this sort of like crime, he would have been an accountant. Now he's in jail, but he's putting on a play. So like, who can say what is the better sort of outcome, you know? Um, it's interesting, you know, do the ends sort of justify the means? I don't know, but yeah. Anyway, all that's to say is let's get to our numbers here because, you know, uh, I wanted to know Harry, Danielle, myself, what did we all think of the film on a scale of one to five Jewish stars based on all of this that we just talked about? Danielle, you're our guest. Do you want to go first? Five out of five. Okay. Short, sweet, and to the point. All right. Yeah. What, what about it do you think gets it like all the way there? Like as this is the premier Jewish film, so to speak, because five out of five, you know, I'll spoiler warning. I don't think I'm going to give it a five and I'm not sure if Daniel will either. So I want to give you a chance to kind of defend that before we, uh, we jump in. I mean, I've got to be consistent with my review uh, rating on uh, the film itself, which was five out of five. I mean, and it comes back down to uh, how, uh, I mean, the script, the direction, the performances. I mean, you've you've got Mel Brooks, who's pretty much had to write this production, like this absurd production that we see uh, halfway through the film. And I've spoken with composers and lyricists about having to write uh, like these bad Broadway musicals for TV shows. It's Mm -hmm. not an easy feat. Oh, I bet. It's and like the go- Jewishness, you think, also five out of five, just oh, yeah. on the strength of the uh, the movie. Yeah. Like All it. right, Daniel, sticking with it. Harry, how about you yourself? Know. I, I know I, I can't I can't uh, dissuade you. I think, but um, I mean, I I love the movie, and I think it was genuinely charming and comedic. I want to give a shout out to my Bubby, who's hopefully listening to this, who was actually one of the uh, those reaction shots in the audience of of not this film, but the remake of it. So the one a couple of years later. So you know, don't watch this one looking for her because uh, you'd be off by a couple decades. But uh, but just kind of in there reacting to it. So sw- like soft spot in my heart for this movie. I really did like it. I liked seeing kind of how important those uh, those reactors were, but also just you know unpacking some of these themes and really seeing like in some ways this is Mel Brooks dealing with these questions of Jewishness and of legacy and of Hitler like head on. And it's funny because it reminds me of like Blazing Saddles, I think. There's definitely a Hitler in the audience towards towards the end. I think in yeah, that final number, in a commissary, he's eating in the cafeteria. Yeah, right. And like he's he's always working in that kind of humor. He's always referencing and and just like alluding to you know these questions of you know Jewish comedy and and putting it in context. I think with Nazism and with you know the decades that he was working in versus the decades before that led to it. Like it's always been there, but never so explicit as in this movie. So. I think this is more Jewish than maybe some of his other ones. I don't remember my exact score for Blazing Sandals. This might be more or less than that one. I don't know. We did that one a while ago. Yeah. But I I don't know. Like, there, there's a lot of Jewishness, I think, thematically going on here. I didn't even talk about, you know, this this theme that I only because I've mentioned in a couple other episodes, but, you know, that classic idea of Jewish teshuva, where it's if you are in the same position again, are you going to act similarly? Or are you going to change your ways? And in that very final scene, you know, when they're in the courthouse, they... Uh, I think it's uh, Max's character says, you know, we promise we're going to learn. We learn from our mistakes and we won't do this again. And then when you ultimately see them selling the rights to the play in the jail, they're clearly not. Right. So. Right. Right. There, there's there's all these like Jewish allusions in there that I don't even think we touched on. So so there is a lot, even though the movie in terms of its content might not explicitly be talking about Jews or doesn't even name any Jews in it. But. I'm con- I'm talking myself up, and I think I'm a little inspired by you, Danielle. I'm not I'm not going to go all the way up to five, but I'm going to call it four stars. This it's I'm I think it was more Jewish in retrospect by the end of this recording for me than than when I first came into it. But I'm I'm sticking with that four Jewish stars for this one. What do you think, Daniel? Heal of the podcast. Here we go. You know, <laughs> I feel like I'm I'm not entirely convinced that this is a five star movie, and it's definitely more than. It's more Jewish than it's not Jewish. And I think, you know, my, I probably have to go like three and a half stars because I feel like there are Jewish characters. You know, we have Bloom, we have Bialystok, the way he pronounced it was like very Jewish sounding. And I think all the themes we touched on, you know, even in this last section, you know, maybe bump it up a little bit, but I'm still not entirely convinced. So I'm just going to have to go with the three and a half stars. So, yeah. Um, 
Danielle, I wanted to thank you so much for joining us today on Jews on Film to discuss the producers. I wanted to ask if at this time there's anything you wanted to plug or promote. Well, you can find my work on salzyatthemovies.com, S-O-L-Z-Y. You can find me at Danielle S-A-T-M on Instagram, Danielle S-A-T-M at mstdn.social, uh, Salzy at the Movies on Facebook. Again, that's S-O-L-Z-Y. I would say Danielle S-A-T-M on Twitter, but I'm not really <laughs> checking Twitter anymore. Fair. Yeah, we'll fair. see where that's even at by the time this uh, this episode releases. Yeah, we'll see if that's a thing of the past. But uh, yeah, again, thanks so much for discussing this classic with us. And uh, Harry, anything to plug? Just keep listening to the podcast. Season three is, uh, by the by this point, is, is chugging along and I think going pretty well, I, I hope. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, keep checking us out. Make sure to follow us on all the social medias. We're on YouTube, on Instagram, on TikTok, on Twitter right now. And, uh, you know, please rate and review us on, on iTunes and Spotify. And if there's someone you know listening, or if there's someone you know who would like this podcast, please feel free to share it. We would love to hear, you know, other people finding out about the podcast through friends. And let us know if there's any fun scenes that you like about the producers that we didn't talk about. You know, let us know in the comments on all the social medias uh, about the episode. And uh, have a great one, and we'll talk to you later. Thanks. Bye-bye. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel and Harry edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.